Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to talk briefly about the BBFC. To have a film shown theatrically in the UK, you have to pay for the BBFC to watch and then rate your film. Universal, parental guidance, 15, 18, and so on. The rate depends on the length of your film, and although filmmakers can easily reach an audience without their film being screened in cinemas, this arguably closes doors to talented but skint filmmakers. A few years ago, one filmmaker decided to protest via the medium of film itself. He crowdfunded a film called Paint Drying, which would literally be footage of paint drying, and would last as long as the money raised by crowdfunding would allow. As it happens, the film ended up being 607 minutes long, it was watched by the BBFC, and it sparked some debate about how outdated some of their practices are. That filmmaker is this week's guest on Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with criticism, critics and reviews. His name is... Charlie Line. In terms of reviews... I make uh, video essays uh, and essay films about cinema often, so I've uh, made a film about teen movies, I've made a film about fear in cinema... Um, whatever I find interesting, I guess. So I used to write a movie blog called Ultra Culture, which was where I wrote for several years. Uh, and then I wrote a weekly column for The Guardian. Uh, I've written for Sight and Sound, uh, Vice, ID. Uh, I'm sure there are more. It's been a while. I'm Adam Brooks. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Reads Like a Fool. Now, let's talk to Charlie. To start with a, a very broad question, uh, what to you is the purpose of a review? I, I mean, to me, a review or any uh, criticism is uh, just art in and of itself. Um, so I really see no distinction between um, a piece of writing that notionally reviews a film and the way that a film is consciously or unconsciously responding to however many works of art that came before it. Um, I think it's all part of a kind of endless uh, building on the shoulders of giants type lineage. Um, And so I really, yeah, I really don't see any kind of um, distinction between uh, criticism and any other kind of art. Um, Saying that as someone who has done 
both sides of what of where people would normally draw that that dichotomy um and i you know i definitely didn't have that experience that that some people have making that leap where i suddenly you know swore off criticism or you know became one of those people who says oh now i know how hard it is to make a film i'll never criticize one again um yeah it it, it all feels like this part of one continuum to me yeah um and i think it's, it's interesting because um talking to quite a lot of people um I was saying about the fact that I find a really well-structured review or, or a critique often more interesting than the thing it's about. And there'll be, there's been cases in the past where I've, I've read something that I thought was fantastic, but I had no desire to go and read or see or listen to the product. So, yeah. Um, what was the... Uh, can you remember the first thing you ever reviewed? The first thing... Well, so when I was about 16, I started what at the time was very briefly a podcast uh before it settled into its more natural state of being a a written through blog pioneering basically yeah uh that was that was (laughs) at a time when the bar for podcasts was extremely low um and uh yeah so the first thing and so it was called ultra culture and it it later became a, a movie blog and is kind of how i got into writing about film in the first place um but yeah the very first thing i ever did for that was uh went to the 2008 BAFTAs um not as accredited press but just as like a person uh and queued up from like six in the morning to get into those like fan paddock areas um and so just spent the day kind of with these obsessive fans of like I remember specifically spending a lot of time with some really devout fans of uh what's his name from Lord of the Rings Elijah Um, Wood no uh we could be here uh, a while it's a long cast <laughs> is he is he legolas who's legolas? Oh, Orlando Bloom? no no not him then the other one um the one with the scraggly hair the attractive man oh, okay figure mortensen thank you uh and so yeah i just spent the day and so that it wasn't really a review but that was my first kind of exposure to the world of like making something about cinema um, even if in that case it was just sort of standing in a very loud area for six hours and sort of screaming yeah. at celebrities. Um, but yeah, that was that was my kind of entryway. And then from there, I started writing, like this really dates it. I started writing actual letters printed out and posted to distributors uh, asking, like tr- trying in my most uh, cack-handed way to like, make the blog sound like a bigger deal than it was um and asking to attend press screenings or whatever uh and so a few i think took pity on me and also it was sort of at a time when there weren't really like movie blogs was more of a thing in the u.s certainly and i'm not sure there were any uk specific ones at the time do you think it's one of those things that you uh, you kind of got sent things and people were receptive uh, because they knew the impact it has in America? Because I had a, a similar thing. I was doing a bit of student radio here and they would give us accreditation to all kinds of massive events because college radio in America was, was important and people cared. And over here, they just figured it was the same. Yeah, I think there might have been a part... Uh, that might have been a part of it after a while. I think initially, and like this is evidenced by the fact that it was all the much much smaller distributors at first who took interest and i think really they just sort of like sympathized uh with what i was trying to do and also you know they had as they still do these press screenings where you know the smallest 
theater you can rent in soho seats 30 and they maybe only had six or seven critics coming along so why not let some kid in especially if you're not getting a thousand of those requests every day like perhaps you are now um and so yeah i went along and i remember like some of the earliest films i saw uh by doing that are films that i've never heard of since there was a film called i uh, what was it called it was like an italian family drama and it was called like my brother has no brother or something uh <laughs> there was a quite uh bad sort of big epic drama about water polo set during the second world war i can't remember what that was called oh, so either you you're getting the proper the proper niche film the so i really yeah i spent like a year really seeing some odd things but i was you know over the moon as you can imagine so i would happily go and watch anything and you know i was still at at school i was doing a levels so i would finish the school day and then hop on the bus to central london and suddenly find myself watching a water polo drama with a load of 45 year olds and it was very bizarre um but yeah it just sort of came on gradually from there really like i I managed to get a small handful and then a slightly bigger handful of people reading that blog and then i think like you say some of the bigger distributors started to sort of get a bit antsy like oh maybe the internet is something we should give a shit about um and you know within a year or two it seemed like they all had dedicated online agencies and that whole thing was very codified very quickly Um, one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you in particular is that obviously a lot of your work is is less quite unquote straight reviewing uh i suppose the, the the stuff you write for the guardian has been but um as you said there's kind of there's kind of a blurred line with a lot of your work between critiquing the genre and being part of it and so on and so i guess it's a good place to start talking about beyond clueless um and I wondered, um, because Beyond Clueless feels positively celebratory of, of, of a certain era of teen movies, do you think that's? Do you think there's a reason that that's not reflected in reviews generally? Is there a snobbery problem when it comes to that kind of genre in film? Yeah, undoubtedly. And that was definitely one of the things that pulled me towards that as a genre was how fascinated I was by those films and what a dearth of, you know, thoughtful criticism there was on the subject which is not to say you know that I thought critics needed to like them more or anything but even if you dislike them to kind of grapple with them uh Mm -hmm. is is what I felt was missing especially because you know these are films that are like consciously targeted at an incredibly like impressionable group like specifically people who are at their most kind of malleable um, and I suppose a group, a group that's unlikely to have many critics among it, naturally, Ooh. they're not making they're not making Euro trip for, you know, 50 year old journalists. No, totally. And so you would, you know, and Euro trip is a good example where, you know, that was kind of the film that uh, kicked the whole thing off for me because I had loved that film as a teenager. And I think like a lot of people, like as I entered my 20s, I started rewatching some of those films and you the alienating thing about it is obviously you see yourself in it uh quite clearly and and you see the things you like and the things you dislike about yourself and the things that you never saw as a teenager um and Eurotrip is a is a great example of one that like has this palpable uh stream of kind of gay panic running through the whole film and that you know and this is not like some 
outre interpretation. This is like clearly there in the text. It pops up again and again and again. And it's sort of about this character who uh, seems quite homophobic and quite repressed. And all of that is clearly there. And then I remember going and looking at the reviews after I'd rewatched it. And it was just the most superficial surface thing you could imagine. I mean, when they weren't, you know, literally a hundred word stub that just said the synopsis, they would just be saying how poorly made the film was or saying how, you know, insulting the film was. Often completely ignoring the very evident satire of the whole thing. I mean, the film, for people who haven't seen it, is a very, very obvious satire of American ignorance in which this group of American teenagers go around various European cities and encounter these larger-than-life characters who sort of stand in for the cliches about those cities. Um, It doesn't take a genius to work out that it's meant to be satirical. Um, But people just seem to not imagine that the genre was even capable of such a basic level of satire uh, or um, nuance. And yeah, because of the type of film it was, you think? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, mm. you, you notice the the exception to that uh, is always when a kind of respectable, revered filmmaker, someone like Auguste Van Sant, steps in and makes a movie in that genre. And often the movies aren't all that different than any other film would be uh, in that mould. But the fact that it has this name attached suddenly in a lot of people's eyes, seems to kind of give it credibility. And so the interpretation is completely different. Um, and anyway, yeah, so the so Beyond Clueless, the film I made about, about all this, was kind of growing out of that frustration. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of the things that, that Beyond Clueless seems to, or focuses on a fair bit is, is the kind of the common features of, 
I guess it's teen movies from late nineties into early two thousands. Um, when when looking at films or reviewing films, to what extent do you kind of celebrate that it it keeps the the tropes of the genre, and to what extent does subverting them more impressive? Like, where's where do you think the line is between fam- formulaic and familiar? I guess that's a good question, and and I think it's extremely difficult to to draw that line because it's there are obviously like a handful of of teen movies that uh, consciously play on uh, the tropes of the genre um obviously to pick like a an out and out example like not another teen movie is obviously literally just a parody of each of the tropes um but i think beyond that like you really would struggle to find a teen movie that isn't at least subconsciously riffing on every other teen movie that's ever been made before it uh even if they're not kind of knowingly winking and nodding every time they do it um so to me i think that was what made it so easy to um try and make a critique of a teen of the teen genre that would also function as a teen movie in and of itself is that it felt like that was already the essence of the genre you know it's one of the most familiar uh replicatable molds out there um in everything from its aesthetic to its set pieces to its structural um tendencies i mean how many teen movies have you ever seen that start on the first day first day back of school and end at the graduation um so it felt really ripe for that kind of exploration um not least because i was very wary of making something that would seem to condescend to the genre or or like feel like it was above the genre in some way um and so the fact that all these movies already felt like they were critiques or self-critiques uh, made me a lot more comfortable in, in going down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, something we touched on a little bit earlier, but um, I was going to say, I expect probably more people refer to you as a filmmaker than a critic in kind of uh, uh, like panel introductions and things like that. But uh, you could obviously argue beyond Clueless and Fear itself, especially blur the lines between casting a critical eye over art and making art itself. Um where would, would your description be of what you did with those films? Do you think the distinction between critic and artist is one worth making? No. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I'm I'm very unfussy as to what people call me. Um, and so, as you, as you say, like, in certain contexts, I will just be introduced as a filmmaker. In certain contexts where, you know, people know me for, like, the short documentaries I've made. People think of me as like a documentarian, which is obviously a whole other bracket in some people's minds, or a critic or a writer or, you know, it's so context dependent. Um, But yeah, personally, I I see all those things as existing on kind of a single plane anyway. So it, it, you know, absolutely Beyond Clueless is a film. It is also a work of film criticism. And yeah, I think, to be honest, I would struggle to think of a film that isn't on some level a work of film criticism, even if it's in a much more implicit way than than something like uh, Beyond Clueless. Um, But yes, I'm easy. I mean, the only time I find myself worrying about what to call myself is like on funding applications where, you know, they want to hear a very (laughs) specific thing and you have to nail it. (laughs) 
Um, it brings me quite nicely onto paint drying as well. Um, I'll have explained a bit about this uh, in the intro briefly. Um, obviously, it's a film, uh, but it's also in a lot of ways a review uh, and, and a protest of sorts uh, at the BBFC itself. Um, so maybe you could explain just for the millionth time a little about it and why you made it. Sure. Yeah, so, so in fact, uh, Beyond Clueless, after it uh, played festivals... It was released by a few kind of traditional distributors in various countries. But then in the UK, I self-distributed it. So I did like a little tour of maybe like two dozen cinemas. Very small stuff, but like Q&As. And, you know, I went up and down the country and showed it to people. And it went really well. And it was nice and it was low-key. But I think it's one of the best things that's happened in the last sort of five, ten years to film culture is that that is a viable enterprise for filmmakers you know it cost me next to nothing to do that beyond train fares you know i made the dcp myself at home uh it's really very affordable now with one kind of glaring exception which is that you still big or small have to pay um the censor board the bbfc to watch the film and give it a rating so 12, 15, 18, whatever, um, before you can show it in a cinema anywhere in the UK. Um, and so in practical terms, that means for a 90-minute film, you're looking at about £1,000, which was almost the entirety of my distribution budget for doing that little release. Um, and in my case, like I was fortunate that the film made more than that on this tour, so I was still you know, in the black and it didn't, wasn't the difference between doing it or not for me, but I know of plenty of other, you know, people who are hoping to do a much smaller exercise, whether it's screening in one or two or three cinemas for whom that is the barrier. And, you know, the, the impossible, the, the a thousand pounds, even if they have access to it is not going to be made back through such shorter run. Um, and so I, got thinking about the BBFC and it's a company that I've an organization that I've been sort of fascinated with for years, uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I had this idea to do a kind of, cause one of the things I think it has going for it in terms of its ability to, uh, remain a part of the, uh, film landscape, despite sensor boards having been pretty much removed from every other artistic discipline in this country, um, is that it's, been around forever i mean it's literally been around for almost as long as cinema itself it was founded in 1912 the first uh, cinematic demonstration in the uk i think was 1896 so there was you know less than two decades before uh, this organization cropped up and so i thought what was needed was some way to kind of get people actually talking about its existence even if they then came to a different conclusion than i did and thought that it should exist um and so the idea i had was to uh, crowdfund uh, a submission to the BBFC um, which would just be a single unbroken shot of white paint drying on a brick wall so the proverbial watching paint dry um, and because the BBFC charges per minute the idea was that the length of the film would be determined by how many people got involved with the project and put money in to kind of encourage this debate so technically the, the paint drying could have been limitless in length it, it was just it was only uh it's only obstructed by the amount of funding is that absolutely right? yeah so the, so so it could have been a, it could have been a year-long film that the bbfc would have had to watch 
had 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 you kept going. I mean, the kicker for me was that it got the most attention it got was once they were already once the BBFC had begun watching it. So at that point, obviously, it was too late for people to put money in. But I had so many people at that point saying like, oh, I wish I'd known this was happening and I could have elongated it even further. But anyway, it was mm. 10 hours and seven minutes, um, which <laughs> took out a day and a half of, of BBFC screening time um, while they all sat down and, and watched nothing happen. Um, do you know, do you have any information from them about how many people, is it just one person that, that is subjected to this or d- does it have to be verified by more than one person? Like, do you get the name of the person who did it? That sort of thing? Not that specific, but the, so the standard protocol is that two examiners have to watch it, have to watch any submission. <clears throat> and um, that amazingly, that, that dates from the early days of the BBFC when the way they would do it, when they were uh, rating silent films, they had two projections going at the same time of two different films and they would have an examiner on each side of the room watching one of them and then they would have the head examiner in the middle and he would just sort of flip between the two looking for anything objectionable. And my favourite fact about the BBFC is that they kept that practice going for the first year or two of sound films and would try and have these like warring films playing on either side of the room and try and keep track of all the stuff that was going on in both. But anyway, so it's a sort of descendant of that. Yeah, two examiners watch every film. Uh, and in my case, I found out that uh, uh, apparently the decision they made was to have teams of two trading off every hour um, so as not for them to become kind of hypnotized by it and not <sighs> be concentrating. So I think most of the BBFC examiners will have got a little bit of time with it. Well, that's that's quite a quite an unexpected bonus, I guess. If you know the the more the more staff at the BBFC that get the point of this, the better. Yeah, right? totally. And I mean, you know, obviously, who knows? I think they now have kind of at the time they seemed quite irritated by it, at least in their response publicly, because all manner of um, uh, outlets went to them for a comment, and you know, I went on the today program and they tried to get someone from there on to kind of come on and debate it with me and they just said a blanket no across the board i think subsequently they figured out that it would be better for them to kind of own it and so apparently Mm -hmm. now although i've not seen it myself apparently in the foyer at the bbfc they have a framed copy of the certificate um (laughs) which someone needs to get a photo of because i i don't quite believe that until i see it but yeah it's it's clever if they have done that Visitors to the BBFC, if you do get a picture and want to send it to readslike a four at gmail.com, we'll, uh, we'll make sure it gets passed on. Um, that's amazing. And so the only kind of the only other feedback you get from them is the official documentation that they've seen it and that it's rated universal, presumably. Yeah. So I normally it takes weeks to, to get the actual certificate. But I think because I like I I did a Reddit AMA while they were watching it. And that was what kind of resulted in most of the press that the project ultimately got. And so it was kind of at its height of attention right while they were watching it. And I think perhaps quite wisely, they decided that they didn't want to kick off a whole new round of press attention two weeks later by giving me the certificate. So I wound up getting what I'm almost certain must be the fastest delivered BBFC certificate ever because they delivered (laughs) it that afternoon like an hour after they finished watching it. I mean, in fairness, they didn't have a lot to write up because I think the synopsis was literally paint drying is a film of paint drying on a brick wall. 
the certificate <laughs> being you for no material likely to offend or harm. But the speed you got it is almost inversely proportional to the length of the film. Exactly, yeah. Durational yeah. cinema. <laughs> um, well, it's nice that it's nice that someone's uh, holding them to account because I suppose, in blunt terms, a BBFC rating is is one of the most important reviews that a film can receive. In that you can't be shown without it, and for a lot of distributors, I guess you know if you don't get what you're looking for, then it it, it can limit the impact a film might have or the or the audience it's going to get. Totally. I mean, this is the thing. You know, they they hold they they're very proud of boasting how much more liberal they are than they were. You know. 30 40 years ago and of course that's true you know obviously all of the most prominent examples that you can think of of the bbfc banning films is way back in the past you know nowadays they get a kind of free pass from a lot of commentators because the stuff they're banning is not you know straw dogs or anything that anyone actually gives a shit about it's always you know mm. the human centipede three or some incredibly low budget like rape revenge movie then and who wants to stand up and bother to make the defense of these films but i think the whole other side of it that people completely ignore is what you're talking about which is um what the bbfc calls um uh when they give advice before the submission is officially made so they'll watch a mm -hmm. film on advice not to give it a rating, but to say, this we predict this will get this rating if you continue on down the path you're going. And so films right. get completely re-edited in order to fit into these narrow categories. Um, so in a way, they're the most pervasive editors of film. It's just that they do it in a kind of advisory way. Right, and they don't count that as, as a cut or as a censorship because they say, well, the film never existed in that previous form. So it's right. all quite, you know, semantic. Um, but, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I know there's a lot of different ways you can come down on an organization like the BBFC. Um, personally, I would uh, argue for a system where the BBFC exists but is voluntary. Uh, other people I know disagree with me on that and think that all films do need to be seen in one way or another, but that these decisions are too harsh or, you know, people have all kinds of different positions. But the main thing that the whole point of the project was, was just to get people even discussing them. Um, mm -hmm. So even when people um, disagree with me, it's kind of nice that they're talking about it. Yeah. Um, and is, it, is that kind of that system of a film classification board having the power over whether or not something's shown in a cinema or not is that something that extends to other countries is, is there an equivalent everywhere or is this quite specific to the uk yeah well so the obvious example is um is the us uh, which people often rightly think of as um more illiberal uh, in its uh, ratings board the mpaa uh, is undoubtedly uh, much more reactionary and conservative than um the bbfc and you know still makes decisions that are very openly homophobic and you know that cliche about them allowing any amount of gun violence through but almost no sex still holds true the big difference however is you can release a film in the u.s without an mpaa certificate and loads of people do um indie films specifically obviously you know the big studios are never going to release star wars unrated but uh, little distributors with tiny films that they want to play in a few cinemas in New York or LA don't have to pay this huge fee and make their film, you know, beholden to the whims of the MPAA. Um, and so that 
could easily happen here. Um, the issue is that the uh, the licensing power previously for what films could be shown was in the hands of individual councils. And so councils ultimately in the early 20th century got together and decided that the BBFC could be responsible for it instead. Um, so the problem is you've got to roll back not just one layer of decision-making, but a couple and say, well, why, why do I need permission from the council to show a film when I don't need permission to sell a book or to put a play on or whatever? Um, mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's going to take a while. I mean, the thing is, all of the actual legalese of it is being so vastly outpaced by the technological advances, which mean that the actual act of banning or limiting a film is basically an impotent one anyway all it means is that people will illegally download the film rather than paying whoever to watch it i wanted to move on a little bit to uh, frames and containers uh the, one of your recent shorts which obviously continues the theme of, of critiquing and and re reviewing the making of film as much as the end product uh and kind of focuses on the consumption of it I wondered, um, has there been times when the context of a film, the manner in which it's shown to you, has changed your opinion of it? Um, I guess, for example, I don't think I'd ever enjoy a film as much when I'm watching it on a train or in a cinema that's really cold. Um, but obviously, you know, Frames and Containers mainly concerns itself with with, with the, the shape of the image that you're you're seeing. Yeah, no, I, but but I think you're right. Like the the larger point is is that question of like how right are our assumptions about the context in which we watch a film and how much it matters or doesn't um and so the although the short is is kind of um broadly speaking about aspect ratios and the kind of uh nerdy minutiae of uh the evolution of aspect ratios over the last hundred years um the ultimate question becomes yeah like where is this going where are we going to be watching films in 5 10 15 years time and how does that affect the shape that they are you know if if we all in 10 years time are watching all of our films on our laptops or our phones or in vr then that's going to require a whole different set of kind of formal traditions um to the ones that we associate with cinema whether that's you know 2.35 to 1 and 1.85 to 1 and these various cinematic standards um all that's going to become a lot less relevant um so yeah personally like i agree i've not had all that many transformative uh cinematic experiences on the train i would say i've had a few on planes which i think mm -hmm. is true of a lot of people like the the extra altitude gives it a certain something Everything's got a heightened emotional edge on a plane. And also, I think that it's, it's surely it's to do with the oxygen. It's to do with the fact alcohol affects you differently on, on, on planes. The jet lag, I guess, the additional tiredness. It's a whole all of these concoction, things. isn't it? Yeah. I vividly remember crying at the movie uh, The Other Women. Okay, I don't know. Uh, where, like, Cameron Diaz and um, that... Uh, th there's three women and they all turn out to be dating the same man and it's a bad movie but in this context I was deeply touched <laughs> and I suppose people when they're flying as well it's usually to do something particularly joyful or it's to go and visit a loved one and so everyone is a little more prone to 
to emotion in film. Totally, yeah. And and to give yeah. a more like regular example, like I watch a lot of stuff on a laptop in bed, um, or you know, on a laptop in any environment. And I think that is a very kind of specific kind of cinematic experience um and one that's you know for all that it might be less kind of technically uh a technically accurate representation of the film you know obviously the the sound on my laptop isn't especially great and it's not you know 2k or or 4k but um the way that that allows a piece of work to kind of become a fluid part of your life i think is an equally valuable experience to like going into a cinema and leaving your life at the door and experiencing something in a, in a kind of temple of cinema, as so many people uh, like to call uh, movie theaters, Um, which is not to say that it's superior or inferior. I just think it, there's, there's something about that. There's something about like letting film or TV or whatever into that kind of intimate side of your life and into a more kind of fluid space where you might doze off halfway through or be thinking about something else or be thinking about what you're doing the next day it all just becomes a lot more um conversational it's like your life is talking Mm -hmm. to the movie the movie's talking to your life as someone who's reviewed plenty of films but also then obviously made films that are reviewed themselves do you think you've treated the reviews of your own films differently because you've been on both sides are you, are you more understanding of reviewers' viewpoints of, of your work? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, well, I mean, I don't want to presume that uh, filmmakers who haven't written film criticism aren't capable of this. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think certainly my experience has been that it's helped me to understand what we should mean when we say a good review or a bad review. Um, you know, I've had plenty of... Uh, broadly positive reviews that are deeply superficial and don't really engage with the material at all um and i've had plenty of broadly negative reviews that really get to the heart of things um and i think it takes a bit of willpower but you have to recognize that the latter is vastly more valuable both to the world and to me personally uh, than the former um not least because you know i see it as advice you know actually beneficial advice if something taps into what you were going for or what you think you achieved with a film but makes criticisms uh, and negative points alongside it then you kind of have to take that seriously because clearly mm-hmm. it's engaging on a level that that is valuable um and obviously that's difficult and there there is a side of you that always just wants to kind of you know react against uh, criticism um, but I've certainly you know in my experience taken on very taken on board very specific criticisms from reviews and, and applied them in my work going forward um, I don't know why anyone would reject uh, the words of someone who has devoted so much of themselves to a viewing experience you know it, it is a level mm-hmm. of engagement um, that's almost kind of unparalleled to not only watch a film with such a critical eye, but then spend time creating a piece of writing in response to it. Um, so when it when it lands, I think it's it's a really valuable thing. 
Mm-hmm. And conversely, have you ever had an unexpected reaction to a review that you've written from a crea- from the creator of the work? I uh, have I I um I've said like I remember it being a really pleasant surprise when people would be willing to have a conversation with you about a negative reaction to a film uh and i think unfortunately now in the age of twitter like even something that is notionally having a conversation can often turn into just like the creator sicking uh, an attack on the critic because if they engage Mm -hmm. on twitter suddenly like 50 people storm in and even if the creator is being game and willing to have a conversation everyone else is like you're a fucking dickhead you're wrong um Mm. but yeah i remember like uh, i'm trying to think of specific examples i remember carol morley being very um game and uh ready for a discussion after i said i really didn't like uh dreams of a life Mm -hmm. uh what else i think i had like a brief when i was like literally when i was like 16 I had a very, very, very brief online feud with Ryan Johnson, now director of two Star Wars films, (laughs) uh, about his uh, quite bad movie, The Brothers Bloom. Uh, Mm -hmm. Luckily, I think all evidence of that has since been wiped off the internet. But um, until now, (laughs) but yeah, he uh, he he always seemed pretty uh, pretty game, Uh, and you know I liked Looper so. Maybe we're back on our feet mm-hmm. now. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sure there are other examples. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think you're drawn to making films that are a discussion of genre and its limits and pleasures? Do you think you'll continue to make films about films? Yeah, I think I'll definitely continue to make films about films. I think genre, probably less so. Um, you know, Beyond Clueless was sort of, I only slowly really came to realize that that was a genre study. I don't think I even really knew what the term genre study meant when I started making it. Um, And so it came about purely because I did feel so immersed within that world, or at least a very, very specific slice of that world, the one that happened to coincide with my own adolescence. Um, so I think I'd be unlikely to to take on a genre in the same way if only because I don't feel immersed or or as authoritative in any other area. I mean I mean I'm really not a um encyclopedia of film knowledge or a completist or or even, you know, much of of what is meant by like the term cinephile. Um so for instance when I made the when I made my second feature length film fear itself which a lot of people described as like a a genre study about horror cinema Mm -hmm. i never thought of it that way only because i'm so not an expert on horror cinema and it's it's quite consciously not a movie that attempts to like define that genre or even come to any grand theory about what it's about um i kind of consciously tried to make it instead more about an exploration of a specific emotion 
in cinema, namely fear, and obviously the crossover with horror is is self-evident, but plenty of the examples that I used in the film were quite consciously not from horror films because I think equally uh, that's where you find fear in cinema, you know, in unexpected places for obvious reasons. Um, so, yeah, I think increasingly I'm, I'm less interested in, in genre and in the internal universes of movies and more interested in the role that they play in our universe and the way that they interact with human beings. Mm -hmm. And I I guess it's been an evolution in all the films you've made since Beyond Clueless that it's kind of moved more towards the structure and form of of film rather than genre and and the kind of tropes of individual genres. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, that's not to do down that kind of criticism. I think it's just not something I'm especially suited to, which makes Beyond Clueless obviously quite an unlikely starting point um, for my like filmmaking career. Uh, but yeah, no, I think more and more what fascinates me is whatever's happening between the screen and my head. Just looking at, at kind of traditional written reviews, if there was something you could remove from all reviews, a cliche, a phrase... Uh, received wisdom you disagree with what would it be probably plot synopses not tied to a direct criticism Mm -hmm. i don't understand the point of writing anything that happens in a film other than to make a point about it um and i think that's a that's something you find among the best critics is that there is no explanatory line that isn't there for a very specific critical reason and that you're even if you haven't seen a film your understanding of what it's about or what li- what literally happens in it is via um an, a point being made is via some sort of argument being uh handed out to you even if there's a plot synopsis stapled to the back of it um and so I, I have very little patience for, you know, the, uh, the the kind of film critic criticism where you get to the second paragraph and you go, oh, I can skip to the fourth paragraph now because I've seen the film, so I know what happens. Um, mm. And I think increasingly now that, you know, the idea of uh, film criticism as um, purely like, I don't know, like a recommendation engine or a, a guide uh, is is dying out because of things like IMDb and Wikipedia and all the other ways that people can find out what a movie's about. Um, I think you'll see the death of that. And already you do. I mean, you know, what's the market for like a, a very blandly written explanatory review of the kind that you used to get in so many magazines now that mm. they all have to be demanding an audience online? You know, who's going to, click on timeouts website to read a hundred word description of what happens in a small film that's out this week and so for people who've got the freedom to to not do that they're they're wasting space by posting effectively synopses that you could find anywhere totally and i'm sure you know in vast majority of cases i'm sure it's not even a decision on the part of the writer it's an editor saying this is our format we do one paragraph of introduction, one paragraph of plot synopsis, and then one paragraph of opinion. Um, and I think it's just taken a little longer than I thought it would for that to die out in the age of the internet. 
Um, coming towards the end, but I wanted to ask, um, this can be writers whose work you admire or anyone really, but can you name three other people I should speak to about the future of criticism, film or otherwise? Uh, you can presume that access isn't a problem for the purposes of this. Okay. Uh, sure, yeah. Um... Eric Hines uh, is one of my favourite critics um and programmers he programs for the museum of the moving image in new york and is a critic mm. for their uh publication reverse shot as well as um a handful of of u.s outlets um and he's someone who i think really has a poise in um being consistently open to the new without needing to reject the old <laughs> he resists an urge that i sometimes give into to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to embracing new cinematic forms and ideas and i think he he really gets a level headed appreciation of of the way things are changing without being um too attached to the past um he also just has a wonderful turn of phrase and really good opinions on movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? The um, Mark Cousins is is someone who I hugely admire and and have, um, in many ways, attempted to kind of mimic the career of as someone who writes beautifully, energetic, um, opinionated, written criticism of film. Also, is an incredibly prolific filmmaker um and seems to see everything that's outside of film's sphere as something that needs to be immediately consumed into it um and then thirdly uh uh i pick a, a a london one uh sophie monks kaufman is uh, a film writer who you might be familiar with uh, who used to work full-time at Little White Lies and now freelances for various people uh, and is currently writing a book that I'm not sure I can say publicly what it is because I'm not sure if it's announced yet, but I'm very looking okay. much looking forward to. And she's someone who just, I think I've learned a lot from in terms of really not being afraid to acknowledge and embrace the inherent subjectivity and emotional power of engaging with a film um and her reviews and also her uh, interviews which i think are like some of the best out there really dazzle me because they don't shy away from that um and so she can have a you know 15 minute junket experience with a filmmaker who has given everyone else the same rote five or six answers to the same predictable five or six questions and she will instead elicit an astonishingly meaningful, thoughtful, emotional exchange. Uh, and I really am in awe of that. 
fantastic. Okay, well, I feel guilty going from such deep recommendations to, to the last thing on my list, but um, this is something that's somewhat cruel, so I do apologise, but we do it at the, at the end of every episode. Um, I've got five phrases uh, to, to read to you. Some of them are ones you've written. Wow. Some of them are ones other, other people have written, and I wondered uh, if you can figure out which is which. So okay. uh, the first one... Um, it's the closest thing to nuance in a series that's otherwise enthralled to the cliches of its genre. Is that you or is that someone else? That sounds like me. Mm-hmm. That one's what you. What was I talking yep. about? Uh, oh, I, do you know what? I haven't got notes for everything oh, here. Oh, no. But, um, I'll, have, I'll have to dig it out. I'm sure I can Google it and find, and find, find the context. Um, the second, relieved of the expectation of shock, the chokehold fear of fear, we can take in the skill of their storytelling unimpeded. Yeah, that's not me. Uh, correct, it's not you, but it was from uh, the Sight and Sound review of Fear itself. Ah, um, okay. <laughs> uh, number three, it's the kind of thing that might work if it had real gags and good performances, but this is a trudge through wacky Euro stereotypes which aren't inventively tasteless enough to be funny. Is that a bad review of Eurotrip and therefore obviously not written by me? <laughs> it is, yeah, it's Peter Bradshaw's review of Eurotrip. <laughs> um, uh, that's three out of three so far. Um, number four, only a select few actors have faces scary enough to send scantily clad teenagers running for the hills and Gary Busey can only make so many movies per year. I don't think that's me. That one is you. No. That, yeah, that's from, uh, I think it's from a, a, a Guardian article about um, the, uh, the use of masks in horror. Wow, that would have been a while ago. Well, I had to go deep for that I one. bet the Gary Busey uh, reference was inserted by a sub-editor because that would not be my go-to reference. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll count it as mostly you, but not all you. Um, and finally, um, other innovations make it notable as a youth pick. The careful balance of sex and race in every scene, the representation of an environment where drugs are non-existent and alcohol pointedly a harbinger of evil. Is that me? That one is not oh. you. That is actually, I picked, I, I picked it because it was, uh, it was genre specific to uh, the kind of thing that's in Beyond Clueless. But that's actually from the Sight and Sound review of Prince's Purple Rain. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> miles off. I, for some reason, I thought I might have written that about It Follows. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, but lots of parallels to be there drawn. There you go. Oh, I was doing so well as well. And then... Oh, well, that's, that's three out of five, two. though. <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, so that's it. Thank you so much for, uh, for speaking to us. Um, is there anywhere that you would like to direct people to see more of your work or catch up with what you're doing? Um, only the obvious. Uh, all my, if anyone's interested to see any of the films I've made, they're all on charlieline.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at charlieline.com. I would also recommend uh, heading back to uh, the, the source of my interest in uh, in Charlie's work and writing. Uh, Ultra Culture is still online and uh, I go back regularly and click a random post uh, <laughs> and, and have a lovely time. So I recommend you do the same. Um, super. That's everything. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for having me. My heartfelt thanks to Charlie Lyne for being part of this week's episode and speaking to me, uh, and also to Emmeline Lawford, who provided the artwork for this podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter if you like. It's at Reads Like a Four, or myself at Adam Nonfiction. If you'd like to drop me an email, it's Reads Like a Four at gmail.com. Uh, we'll have another episode next week with a brand new critic. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.